I'm Lindsay Berra, and welcome to Food of the Gods, a podcast that explores how elite athletes eat and train to fuel performance. In these Gurus editions, we'll feature strength and conditioning coaches, nutritionists, recovery scientists, and other performance specialists who help athletes to be their best. This is part two of our conversation with renowned sports nutritionist and exercise physiologist Heidi Skolnick, who has worked with the New York Knicks, Mets, and Giants, as well as with Olympians and athletes from the NHL, MLS, and WNBA. Currently, she oversees the performance nutrition program at the Juilliard School and the School of American Ballet, and consults on numerous Broadway shows where she has incorporated a sports nutrition model to help dancers and other artistic athletes to properly fuel their bodies for peak performance. And for us normal folks, Heidi's latest book, The Whole Body Reset, is a New York Times bestseller that shares a nutrition strategy for reversing and preventing age-related weight gain and muscle loss. You, you mentioned nutrient timing um, earlier. Talk to me a little bit about that and how it relates to, to carbohydrate consumption. Well, nutrient timing is really, really to Are there certain times in the day to maximize when you take in certain nutrients to help with glycogen restoration with, you know, so you have that energy so that, um, you know, protein when your enzymes are most active and ready for protein synthesis and, and glycogen storage and all of that. So really learning how to eat before, during, and after class practice, rehearsal performance, you know, again, whatever's what you're talking about in reality, it's a 24 hour cycle. It's a weekly cycle. It's a month cycle. It's a year. So, you know, it's, it, it's really, you got to extend it. Every meal is important, but you know, nutrition, we really think about making sure that you're getting in the nutrition you need during your meals. And then around performance, it's more about fueling. So, you know, again, um, I'm not going to necessarily tell you to eat pretzels or gummy, you know, um, uh, jelly beans, you know, right before, like for your meals, but that's a great idea to have before you perform right before you, you know, like within 10 minutes of taking the field or again, the, you know, I, I keep saying like, however many, yeah. pick, pick a field that you want me to focus on. And, but like, that's, that is quick and easy to digest carbohydrate. You're not, you don't care about nutrition right then you care about fueling and that's going to sort of top off your, your, your tank and allow you to have the energy, whether you're running a marathon or going into a class to stay focused and um, get through at a more intense level. We know 25, you know, 15 to 25 grams of carbohydrate doesn't take much, you know, at, at intermission or at halftime you know, allows you to get back and, you know, they've done the studies like in soccer, number of ball contacts, number of score of goals scored number, like all of these different parameters and can see the, the, how, how fast you run versus jog, walk versus walk is all enhanced when you have just 20, 15 to 25 grams at um, halftime. So it's really amazing when you, when you know how much comes down to split second distinctions and timing and all um, and nutrient timing can help with all of that. So I always ask the athletes that we have on the podcast what their favorite pregame meal is. And, and they do differentiate between what they eat like three hours before the game and what they eat like five minutes before the game. So what, what do you what is the, the you know, what's a go to kind of example for as a pregame meal 
not the quickie snack, but the pregame meal. That, and this could work for anyone. It could work for Joe Schmo who wants to go out on his bike ride. It could work for a dancer. It could work for a football player. Well, I mean, again, the idea is the closer you are to, to game time, the smaller the amount and the pure the carbohydrate, the more easy to digest. So as you back that up, it was, it's going to depend on your size and what you're doing, you know, but you're basically like the athlete's plate uh, is anywhere from about a half of your plate being starchy carbohydrate, a quarter being protein. And then depends, you know, a quarter being sort of those vegetables, fruits, colorful um, uh, foods, and then fats sort of thrown in there because we all need fat for satiety, absorbing fat solid vitamins. We all, we need all of that. Right. So, but the, but you know what that, how much that is, it varies depending on, you know, are we talking about a linebacker? Are we talking about a ballerina? Are we talking about somebody who's doing a cycling, you know, long distance event or a short, you know, so it, it does really depend. I can't give you one answer, but the real point is that there are lots of choices within that that's based on your food preference. There's no one, it is untrue that there's just one special food or proprietary blend. And that's the only thing you should eat. I mean, we all have different food preferences and things that we find sit better than for other. Sure, for sure. You know, no, like obviously a burrito is a great food. Well, I shouldn't say it's burrito is a great healthy food, but you're not going to have that right before. And I know some athletes who have tried and you know, they usually have to take step away from the, the court a little bit if that's what they're eating right before they get on the court. You know, there's <laughs> consequences. <laughs> we, we had Bradley Bozeman on the podcast. He's the offensive lineman, was for the um, Ravens, is, I believe a free agent now, but they uh, he was eating steak and a baked potato with sour cream and butter and, and just a bagel with cream cheese all at the same time, all before the game. And I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> I would die, but I guess he's a, a 300 pound lineman. It's okay. Well, you know, start and stop. How long, is it, <laughs> right? Like, does, does it matter if the food's sitting in his stomach? What, how quickly does it go? Does it slow him down? And I wonder if he did experiment and like, you can't argue with success and everybody is, yeah. you know, so, but I will say I've worked with athletes who came to me convinced that one way was right for them. And I never am going to question but I do encourage them to experiment and just see like I did work with a quarterback who never ate. Like I was just talking about that halftime, you know, never did. And I'm like, why should I? I'm already successful. And I said, just try it, just experiment and see, like, it doesn't work. Don't ever do it again. And he was like, Oh my gosh, I had no idea. You know, now that he didn't say, Oh my gosh, but (laughs) that was not, his. (laughs) but you know, he didn't know how much better he could feel. So I don't know. I don't know what else, you know, like we're depending on where they're starting, where they are and where they might go. Um, but I get it. You know, it's, it's, it's hard when you're really successful and it does speak to how strong athletes are and how much they can over uh, how much they can do. Even if it's, even if they're not having the best practices within sports nutrition, they can still do so much. So sometimes it's hard. It is hard to have the motivation to change because it's already working. Yeah. I, I imagine that, you know, dancers with long practices are similar to football players or basketball players who are out there for a really long time. And hydration must be a pretty big factor. The the thing that I think is different, and it's interesting to say that because I was just trying to do a literature review on hydration for dancers. There's not a lot of there's not a lot of study on hydration as an issue. So we just extrapolate to dancers, but it depends. Like if you're looking at dancers like cheer, 
kind of dancers who are working outside in, in the summer and hot or in gymnasiums that may not be very well air conditioned. It's very different than, again, a ballerina that may be working in a climate controlled studio. Mm-hmm. So very different needs. Um, and a, a one and a half hour class versus a five hour rehearsal. You know, Absolutely. a Broadway show dancer who might be on stage and it's like this. You know, um, I have had the honor of working with some Broadway shows and one show they asked me to go backstage to work with the lead to really see what the demand was. And I was like, oh, no, I really need to do that for you. But it was the best thing I could have done. And it was so fascinating and interesting to follow around. They have a dresser you know, somebody who is there assigned to that person to, and to really see how quickly they have to move. This person was on stage almost the entire time when they weren't, they were changing to get back on stage and to see opportunities where they could hydrate um, as well as fuel to get through a two and a half hour performance. It was. Wow. And I don't imagine any of those wardrobe changes that any of the costumes included a camelback. <laughs> Well, that's funny. I did actually, I worked with another, I worked with a TV person who was in, who it wasn't, uh, I, I can't say who it was. So it was, but it was one of them, like, who's like a mascot who's in, or that would also be from who's, who was in a suit the whole time, you know, it was a kid show. Yeah. And so that was one of the solutions is that he wear a camelback because, you know, he couldn't keep getting out of his uniform or, you know, costume, not uniform, costume. I know I keep working, my words are like, well. It's a costume, it's intermission, it's halftime. Um, Either way, a uniform's a costume. It's all getting, good. Getting, you know, it's really getting creative sometimes in how to solve the problem. But across the board, hydration is one of them. Like dancers don't really want to drink a lot before class because they don't want to have to get out of their leotard and they don't mm-hmm. want their stomach to be sloshing. But that's a misnomer that if they drink before, it's true, they drink a lot before. So understanding that drinking small amounts more frequently throughout the day helps you absorb more. Right. And so you'll have time to go to the bathroom before you get into class and you don't have to drink a lot before you can drink small. And then after, if you wait and drink a lot at one time, that's when you pee a lot because your body's signaling, Oh, I have enough to get rid of it. And you you don't have a chance to like have it all absorbed. So, and then, you know, sodium, you need a little bit for fluid balance and all of that. So there are things that, that, each culture of any sport gets in their head about what works or not. And it's sort of taught or they, you know, and that or versus learning the facts, like drink with your meals, right. And have a little bit throughout the day versus a lot at once will be much better for you than downing a lot all at the end of class. And then how do you get ready for the next class? Cause usually there's not a lot of time in between classes. You mentioned sodium there um, to, to balance everything out. Do you have opinions? I'm sure you do on water versus some kind of electrolyte supplement. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you need, you need the fluid, right? But the fluid without sodium, again, your body signals, you end up peeing a lot of that out. You need the sodium for fluid balance. And so whether you're getting it through food, it depends again, which athletes, like if you're talking about a marathon or it could be in the drink because they're having a sports drink that, or a, a electrolyte drink, and then you're, they're taking a product that has the carbohydrate or the, or the food you're taking could have the sodium and you can have water. It's not like, again, there's any one way to do it, but you have to get some sodium in there. And what can happen with dancers or any athlete who gets into, and since it's a podcast, you can't see me doing parentheses, you know, but gets into clean eating where they take on the public health message that it should be low sodium. They should be eating low sodium. That's terrible for an athlete. They need the sodium, right? So they need to be making sure that they get in sodium through their food, and or what in their 
in their uh, fluid choice. If you have, say, for example, a dancer or even any athlete who is fatigued all the time, maybe not recovering properly, maybe not sleeping well, sore, whatever, how do you use food to address different kinds of physical concerns like that? Well, you have to back it up and really, you know, that is when I'll ask for a food record and really see what's going on. Cause that can come from any, you know, that those symptoms are so, uh, it's not just that they're vague. It's just, that they could come from not having enough carbohydrate and being depleted over time. So, you know, again, on Monday, you feel good because you're over eight on the weekend, but by Thursday you're depleted because each day you've depleted your glycogen stores a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. So you're starting your Thursday lower than you ended your Monday. It could be that they're doing vegan, you know, or vegetarian, but not really getting in adequate protein. And that, that takes time for it to manifest. You know, it could be that they're dehydrated because that could cause fatigue. You know, it could be that how they're eating throughout the day is interfering with their sleep, like they're either under eating and they can't sleep because they're actually hungry or they're eating too much right before they sleep. It's interfering with their sleep. You know, it could like, we got to, you know, we got to back it up and see what's actually going on. Are they, are they lacking in certain nutrients? You, you know, all of that. And then the soreness is an interesting one because again, that could come from, and then there's just plain old overtraining. Like, are they not yeah. giving themselves a rest day? Are they training seven days a week? And there's no hard, easy dates. There's no system. You know, it's not uh, in, in terms of their training protocol. Um, you know, again, it's really different. Football is so different with a week in between and what goes on Monday or basketball with back to backs. Um, so, you know, that soreness is also an issue. And then are they getting in fruits and vegetables and anti-inflammatory with the emphasis on sort of protein and carb or starchy carbs? Are they getting in fruits and vegetables and healthy fats that may be helping with some of that anti-inflammation? Um, massage. Yeah. Like there's so many factors to consider. And, and are the places that you work with Juilliard and American school of ballet, are they treating these dancers like athletes? Do they have these recovery um, modalities available for them on the premises and, and everybody's able to take um, advantage of, of, you know, trainers and, and folks who can help them with this stuff? Well, recognize both of them are non-for-profits. They don't have the money okay. that big sports have. And so, it's actually a, a, you know, even just making sure they get enough food for some of them who are on scholarship mm -hmm. is an issue. And we work very hard to make sure everyone can be fed. So wow. we're just talking about starting a fuel station, um, which is what I'm trying to bring to school of American ballet. And we're, we're trying to investigate and see if we can get some sponsorship. Cause again, a lot of the big schools have sponsorships. You know, we don't have that. Absolutely. So listening wants to offer us some sponsorship. Like it could be the Chobani fueling station, whatever, you know, for, for Juilliard, we'd be all for that. Um, so most of the responsibility is left on the individuals. I mean, there is physical therapy, there's Pilates, there's, you know, orthopedic, you know, we, there's referrals, there's, you know, Juilliard does have a health center and there's free counseling and there's free nutrition. And so they do a lot, but it's not, it's not the same as you know, big sports. Yeah. I know so many of these athletes too are so tied to their routines, like to the point where if a uh, major league baseball player nowadays has to play a day game during the regular season, it really throws off his whole routine. How does that play with professional dancers who have rehearsals all day, but then when they're performing, it switches to an evening schedule. How do you help them kind of manage that flip in their routine? 
And it is a big deal what you're saying that that learning how to adjust, adapt and anticipate, um, because it's also very different if you're with a company that's, you know, like when I work with Broadway versus touring companies, or if you're in different cities and you're moving or you're traveling in Europe and touring um, and you're staying in hotels. I mean, it's, it's there's so many different variations and learning how to really understand and respect what your body's need are. And, and again, it depends on budget. Not everyone makes a lot of money. You know, we think mm-hmm. of the stars, but a lot of starving artists out there truly who are um, don't, you know, don't have the resources, but, you know, even just how do you bring sort of like the minor leagues, right? How do you bring food to the, to your hotel and what can you prepare there or where can you find lower, um, you know, less expensive options for food where you are. And also depending on where you are, things may or may not be open late at night, you know, and again, shifting, shifting how you eat, you know, with, um, again, dinner doesn't, if they're not eating enough during the day, then they want to eat a lot after, and then they don't want to eat a lot because they want to go to sleep or they can't go to sleep because after performance, you got to come down, right? There's the same, it's like, they got to come down from that. But if they haven't eaten, they eat a lot and then it's harder to go to sleep and you're pushing sleep from 2am to 3am to 4am. And it really, it's a whole cyclical thing. Whereas if you eat earlier when there are more food options available, like lunchtime and have a earlier dinner and top off the tank and eat at intermission and eat a recovery and then have a smaller meal at night, but still eat, right? Cause you can't restrict. You still have to recover. It's been a two and a half hour performance or whatever. So there's all of those, all of those considerations. And it's hard to imagine that, you know, when we talk about nutrition, there's a lot of time management involved. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and I, I would also think that a lot of these folks that you're working with are young kids kind of coming to New York from the first time from other parts of the country. They're probably living in dorm rooms or teeny apartments with teeny kitchens or no kitchens at all. And they have to basically learn how to fend for themselves in, in the city. Like, do you ever, I know a lot of the minor league strength coaches or trainers will take their young minor league kids, um, especially the Latin American kids to the grocery store and teach them how to food shop. Is this something that you have to do with these young dancers? Well, incoming, we do the cafe. We, there's, a, we actually, it's the scavenger hunt. It's kind of really fun uh-huh. and have a navigate what foods are available for older students. We do, we have someone else who comes in who's better than I at cooking because I'm a nutritionist who's not like the best one in the kitchen and um, come in and do a whole thing on budgeting food shopping and cooking skills, because it's so important. And so, you know, how to use leftovers. Um, actually, we did just come up with a cookbook that both for Juilliard and for, for the School of American Ballet that we now give to the kids. Um, and so that is part of the sort of curriculum. So it's, I was going to ask you if you have a, a cooking background and you just sort of said that you don't, you don't really. And actually one of my favorite recipes on your Instagram was peel orange, eat orange, which I did about 20 minutes before we got on this call. It's a very good recipe and anyone can make it. Um, but when you don't, when you are a nutritionist without that cooking background, how do you even, how do you handle this for yourself? How do you go about getting the right meals when you're not cooking them all the time? Well, fortunately, along with not having great cooking skills, I don't, I also don't have such a sophisticated palate that it has to do something. So I am really good at, you know, I, I do stir fry a ton. 
because it's just so easy. And, and well, and I'm sure you've seen this on my Instagram, which, cause, it, and I can't do a lot of cooking. Like, I know people like to see it because I eat a lot of the same. It's like, how many times can you see my stir fry? Um, because I'm also big on like, I think I just posted this as well. Like if we had Thai food one night, cause I order in a lot as well, um, which suits the people in my life. Uh, but if I order, like we, I had Thai food, so I had some chicken satay and then I have vegetables that I buy. I cut up the vegetables. I use that chicken that was already prepared and left over and the brown rice that was left over. And I make a stir fry and I'm using my leftovers and it gives me another one or two meals for the you know rest of the week. I'm good at, you know, a baked sweet potato, microwave sweet potato with a piece of grilled chicken and some steamed broccoli or something, you know, and sometimes I want more and then sometimes I make more, but, um, you know, it's, it's, I know how to order in. That's another skill. <laughs> what, what way back, what drove you to become a nutritionist? I know exactly what did I was sitting, I took a nutrition class, um, cause I liked eating and, um, and I learned that an orange prevented scurvy, you know, the idea that, that when the ships were out and, and all these sailors were getting disease, the scurvy and by having a lime or a lemon or an orange prevented scurvy. And I thought, oh my God, how powerful is it? That's like amazing. That's the first time I put this connection between what we eat and our health. And that was the moment that I'm like, I, I want I want to know more about this. I want to understand more of this. It's interesting that I end up going to sports nutrition, mm-hmm. you know, because because it's so much more strategic in that way. I just like performance. I mean, that's my exercise physiology and that's my thing. I didn't want to be therapeutic. I wanted to work more preventatively and, and I, and I'm not big on weight loss, you know, because our body, that's a whole different thing. So I really like the performance, like how do we function? Um, but it is still amazing. The whole area of genomics, nutrigenomics, you know, how, what we eat affects our cells, our DNA, how, how things are expressed, whether we do or don't get cancer. I mean, not that it's only related to that. There are a lot of factors, so it's not, you know, but just, just that food is so powerful. Were you an athlete yourself growing up? Yeah. What kind of, what sports? So field hockey, which, uh, is probably the one I was best in basketball, which I was horrible in (laughs) and lacrosse, which I loved. Um, and then I also took dance classes and I eventually really ended up doing almost all dance in college and really didn't, didn't, um, continue sport in college. I was really dancing at that point. So I have both, but you actually, you worked with the Mets, the Knicks, the giants before you ever worked with dancers on a professional level. Well, they were both like now, now most people who work with sport teams are full-time. When I started, when I took, when I was in college, sports nutrition didn't exist yet. I know. I aged myself. So there was not even an undergraduate class in that. So I was fortunate to be part of this emerging field where I took all the classes I could. And it was really more through exercise physiology than nutrition that gave me what I needed to be in, in the sports nutrition world. Um, but it wasn't full time. So I worked when I worked with, I started actually in corporate fitness for a place called the sports training institute way before your time. But I used my weekends and vacations to work with the Mets because it was, they never had sports nutrition before. And I'd go down to spring training. That was my vacation for the year, you know, that I would go down for a few weeks. Um, and so when did I, I've been at the school of American ballet for tw- over 25 years around, um, so like these kids weren't even born yet. And so there was definitely overlap between those different organizations that I worked with. So it wasn't like when my sports, the, you know, sports team stopped, I started with the performing arts, there was overlap. 
It's so interesting because we, we've had a bunch of pro sports and college sports nutritionists on the podcast, and they all talk about how there were not, even some of them who are only in their early 30s, but they'll say when they were in college, most pro teams did not have nutritionists on staff, and they had no idea where they were going to end up working because no one was employing these people. And now, just in the span of like a decade, everybody has one, and they have them at all levels of their organizations now. It's really amazing how, how far mm-hmm. it's come. And they don't just have one, you know, more of them are having now a team of sports nutritionists to work across, which they need because the amount the, the demand on these sports nutritionist time is, is tremendous. Um, you know, yeah. and, and it's really because the science is proving how much of an impact proper nutrition and proper fueling has on performance. Without question. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, do you have a, a opinion as to whether you like working with baseball players, football players, dancers, who's, who, who's your, who's the most malleable? <laughs> really, It's not, it's never, it's never which sport, it's which organization. I'm not going to tell you because like, that's uh-huh. level, right. But the organization, when you work for an organization, management down, you know, and the medical team makes such a difference in the quality because, you know, all of the athletes are wonderful, really. I mean, of course, there's always been a few, and I'm not going to tell the stories, you know, there's always a few who aren't as wonderful, but in general, you know, all of the athletes and dancers are, you know, it's just, it's, it, it's kind of like I'm a teacher, right? So watching them grow, watching, you know, my job is to get them to be, to hear and to be motivated. I mean, clearly it was really different too. When I worked for the Mets, it was in the eighties. So sports nutrition wasn't, like I said, a thing. They were like, you know, who are you? Like, why do we want to, you know, where, I mean, at that time it still was hot dogs in the, you know, right. So it was a very different time. Like frozen yogurt didn't exist yet. And I remember when it frozen yogurt started and one of the players came to me and said, I was in the mall with my wife and we saw this thing, frozen yogurt. And you know, what is that for real? And really, and I thought, wow, he's thinking about this when he's with his wife in the mall. That's pretty great in terms Mm -hmm. of, like awareness. So it was such a different time in terms of sharing and teaching and getting them on board to believe and buy in to how sports nutrition could make a difference versus now, right? It's yeah. just such a different time frame. Um, yeah. We just had Charles Oakley on the podcast. Also, he obviously played in the oh. NBA in the nineties to early two thousands, and he's still around the game quite a bit. And he was telling me how they weren't provided anything to eat at the practice facility or at the arena on game days. And nowadays pro athletes literally get breakfast, lunch, dinner, any number of snacks. They can have a short order cook, making them an omelet, somebody making them a smoothie. They could literally not spend a dime on food if they were so inclined. Whereas the athletes back in the eighties, nineties, two thousands were really doing it all by themselves. I mean, I have to say, I have to give the Mets huge amount of props because you know, back then, right, we just started feeding the minor leagues. They didn't have that before, right? That was that was when it started. And mm-hmm. that was a big deal because, right, yeah. these and they didn't make money. No, right? they're living on, on cereal and applesauce cups, yeah. It's really a big deal. Um, and, yeah, I know the athletes, you know, com- now compared to them, like the difference is mind-boggling. They make more money and they have to pay for less food. <laughs> there you go. So, all right, this has been very fun. Can you just tell us um, where we can follow you on social media so folks can uh, keep up with Whole Body Reset and all the other good stuff you got going on? At Heidi Skolnick. Not oh. Yeah, How easy to find. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Heidi. Mm-hmm.
It's been a pleasure. So much fun. Thank you, Lindsay. Thanks so much to Heidi Skolnick for joining us on Food of the Gods. For nutrition tips from Heidi or for more information on her new book, Whole Body Reset, follow her on Instagram and Twitter at at Heidi Skolnick. Until next time, for more information on Food of the Gods or to download other episodes, visit us at foodofthegodspodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at at foodofthegodspod or email us at foodofthegodspodcast at gmail.com. Food of the Gods is a Digitant Podcast production. Mm-hmm.